Welcome to Brandon Avat. Uh, we are very pleased to welcome back Raja Halwani. Um, he was a guest on the show on the philosophy of love, and uh, we loved him so much that we invited him to talk about the philosophy of sex. So um, Raja also is one of the lead editors um, in a collection of essays on the philosophy of sex, which will be linked in our description. But um, Raja, would you like to start with the thought experiment? Sure. Hi, Mark. Hi, Jason, again. Um, so the thought experiment concerns the what is now called racial sexual preferences or ethnic sexual preferences, as I like to call them sometimes. Um, and I'm, I'm using this thought experiment precisely because there has been some recent interest in philosophy about this question. So imagine someone, let's, let's imagine him to be a man um, who, is, who has no sexual desire to have sex with Arabs, for example. And I'm going to use Arabs in my example because I'm Arab, so I have positionality, so I want to get, to get um, like um, hate mail. <laughs> so imagine <laughs> someone, let's call him John, uh, and John just does not feel that he is attracted to Arabs. Whenever he sees another person, say John is gay also, whenever John sees a guy that might look Arab, you know, semi-curly hair, somewhat of a hooked nose, you know, kind of facial hair, hairy body, et cetera, et cetera, John is just turned off. And if John knows for sure that the guy that he met is actually Arab, John just doesn't, doesn't feel the sexual desire at all for that kind of person. So that so the thought so this raises the question: Is there anything morally problematic with uh, John's sexual desires? Is John a racist of sorts? So the thought experiment might proceed something like this, and I'm going to keep it as simple as possible. Suppose someday a genie comes to John, and genie and the genie says to John, um, John, if you'd like tomorrow, you wake, you can wake up tomorrow and you will have sexual desires, you can feel sexual desires for all members of all ethnic groups, basically. Sorry, not for all members, because we, don't, we never sexually desire all members of any group. But you will have sexual desires for, mem for members of all ethnic groups, so that your sexual issues, for your lack of sexual desire for Arabs will be obliterated, right? You will sexually desire them, much like you sexually desire any other ethnic group, but on one condition. And so John says to the genie, what is the condition? And the genie says, the condition is that when you do sexually desire members of the, of the Arab people, you desire them not from vicious motives. You will desire them just like you would desire members of any other group, basically. Um, and so this is the thought experiment. And my, my, what I'm trying to say with the thought experiment is that if John has no problems with the, with the, with the genie's offer, including the condition that the genie has has, has, has stipulated, um, this will tell us something interesting about whether John is a racist person or not. And if Jeannie refuses the offer, this tells us something also very interesting about whether John is racist or not. Um, and so part of this thought experiment is to basically make the point that whether someone's sexual preferences for members or lack thereof uh, of a certain group is not a straightforward story about whether that person, does not tell us, give us a straightforward story about whether that person is racist or not. A lot more factors have to be put into the picture before we can come to that kind of conclusion. Are you saying that whether or not someone's racial preferences when it comes to their sexual desire, whether or not those preferences indicate racism is dependent on their higher order preferences? So John has, we, in philosophy, we talk about low order preferences and high order preferences. John's lower order preference is not for Arab men, but his higher order preference may be that he wishes he did have lower order preferences 
for Arab men. And if he has that higher order preference, then, he, then he's not racist. Um, but if he lacks that higher order preference, then he is racist. Is that, is that the account? That is, that is exactly what I'm saying with one additional twist. So what I'm saying is that you cannot read off someone's racist views simply from their sexual desires and preferences, basically. And that you, you exactly like you said, Jason, you need to go to their higher order attitudes. So, so John could be someone who would be like, what is wrong with me? Why can I not desire Arab men? God damn it. Change me. I would like to change. And so when the genie comes, John is like, oh, you're a godsend. You know, but the, but the twist that I'm adding to it is that John could also be racist in such a way by in such a way that he says to himself, damn it, I wish I could um, sexually desire Arab men just to screw them over, like literally and metaphorically. Right. So, that, uh, so if it can't be vicious. That's why you said it can't be a vicious yeah, from a vicious source. The, genie right. says, so the genie says you can have the for Arab men as long as you don't act on them from vicious motives. So you don't start sexually designing men just to humiliate them sexually, for example, right? Uh, just to do certain bad things to them. And so this also tells us a lot more because you can want to sexually design members of a certain group because you are able to act on your sexual desires in such a way that it's either good or bad, right? So, so wanting to design members of a certain group doesn't in and of itself also tell you much. You have to add a certain, another layer to it, basically. So I've got a, a, an objection to that account. Um, and I think it's interesting that you, you, you've used an, a, a gay account um, for, the, for, the, for the thought experiment because imagine a parallel case where John is attracted to men and he's not attracted to women. Okay. Yeah. Um, and suppose a genie comes along and says, would you like me to grant you the possibility of being attracted to women? Um, now, it seems if he were to say no, that wouldn't indicate that he's a misogynist, right? right. Um, so, so then surely the parallel would be that if he were to say no about Arab men, that wouldn't indicate that he is a racist or has some bigotry towards Arab men. I used to date someone when I was in graduate school who was obviously gay, but he would also, he would also beat himself up by saying things like, Am I sexist for not desiring women, basically? And I would like, dude, just get, you know, get out, snap out of it. No, you're not sexist, you know. But I think he was asking an interesting question. So suppose, for example, John. Suppose the genie does go to John and say to John, "Hey, John, you can, you can tomorrow, you can start sexually desiring women." Now, if the genie's offer does not come at the expense of his gay sexual orientation. In other words, if the genie says, you can start to desire to, desire sec to, to sexually desire women in addition to, you, you become a bisexual basically, right? And yet John does say no. I think we would like John to give us a compelling account of why he does say no. I mean, what reasons would John have to say no that would shield him from the charge of some sort of misogyny? And I think he does owe us an explanation. So, for example, if John says something to the effect that, well, you know, I'm easily tempted to cheat on my partner and I already have a hard time being faithful to him with all the good looking men. So if you're going to add a bunch of hot looking women, that's going to make it even worse for me. What are you doing to me, man? Come on. You know, that makes sense. Yeah, we would let him off the hook of misogyny. But if John doesn't have such a, an interesting account to say as to why he wouldn't want that, it is an interesting question of why John would want to say no to that, to that question, right? It does smack of misogyny, I think. So one of the things I wonder about is, if we're egalitarians about the worth of people, we think that everybody has some kind of equal inherent value as a human being, 
then should we be striving to desire all human beings equally? So to say that you actually ought not to have a sexual preference at all. In other words, to prefer one person or one type of person over another is to act in some inegalitarian manner. So if someone has uh, scars all over their face or is um, 300 pounds in size or, or is two foot tall or seven foot tall, none of those things should ever weigh in on the equation. Um, maybe even other kind of attributes, you know, how kind they are or how wise they are. We should be totally egalitarian. We should have no preference whatsoever. We should have equal sexual desire for every human being. And then maybe not even every human being is sufficient. We say, well, that sounds a little bit speciesist. Why are you singling out human beings? You know, what about great apes? What about dolphins? What about you know, the next? Thing? Knew the dolphins were coming, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Is there some point where you can say, no, hold on a second. We have preferences in our life in many ways. If I tell you that, you know, I like Chinese food and I just hate Indian food and I read horror fiction, but I hate romance fiction. We just go, well, that's your preference. That's the way that you are. Um, and that there is no good or bad moral question about your aesthetic desires and that sexual desires are, are the same. Um, that if you happen to be a certain way, um, then so be it. Maybe we think you've got some kind of duty to try and cultivate a desire. Um, so if you say, I don't like Indian food, I say, well, this is really great in the restaurant. Maybe you should give it a go and it might develop your palate. We might think there's some kind of obligation to think that way. But I think the prevailing norms are not going to go that way on sexual orientation, for example. So if I, I said to Jason, you know, you've never been with a woman before. Um, don't you think you owe it to yourself to at least try? Some people would sort of see that as some kind of, uh, you know, gay conversion therapy that was you know, rather uncalled for um, and that Jason's desires are his desires and it's none of my business to try and change them or judge him for it. Suppose someone, to use your food example, right? Uh, suppose someone starts by saying, making the case that all cultures have equal worth. Say not necessarily moral worth, but all cultures have equal aesthetic worth. Like there is no argument to be given for saying that one culture is really, really better than another culture, aesthetically speaking. Morally speaking, oof, tons of arguments can be given like that. But aesthetically speaking, no, right? Then it might seem that one does have some sort of, a, uh, for, for, for the sake of um, some sort of fairness to those cultures, right? One might have some sort of, oblig not, if not obligation, at least an ideal to try to give each culture this kind, of, uh, this kind of opportunity. Now with sexuality, the problem with sexuality is that um, what people often, people often um, drop their jaws at suggestions like this because to them it seems quite inconceivable that they will be able to desire um, the really old, for example, the, 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 the person who is um, skin on bones or the really obese or the really, really young, like a baby, for example, or something like this. So people, they go by their own phenomenological experiences of how they feel. And so if you're gay or you're, if you're exclusively gay, you can't imagine yourself wanting to have sex with a woman, for example, or vice versa. So people balk at these suggestions. They're like, what? I can't have an obligation to do that. And of course, one of the reasons that they rely on in making in bulking like this is the principle of ought implies can basically so if one ought if one has an obligation if one has an obligation to for example cultivate their sexual desires for all and sundry then presumably this implies that one can do so 
right? But if one cannot do so, then one has no such obligation. So there is, there is that idea. But thought experiments, such as the genie example, right, um, allow us to shake off the ought implies can principle, at least momentarily, just to test our intuitions about this. So if you really do have a genie, if there is really a genie that comes to you and says, look, Raja, I can transform all your desires tomorrow so that no, no member of the species will escape your clutches, your sexual clutches, the desire, right? Let's put animals aside for a second, right? Um, what reasons do I have to say, I do not want to desire anyone? Now, of course, you can have pedophilia is a whole different problem, right? Maybe I do not want to be the kind of person who desires children. So I have a moral reason to stop the genie there, basically. But after that, as long as I'm able to desire adults who can consent, basically, um, perhaps I ought to be able to say to the genie, yeah, bring it on. Now I, now, I have to think about this carefully because if I, suppose for, if I imagine myself, for example, suppose I don't like hairy men, right? I don't like guys with a lot of hair on their back and blah, blah, blah. Now, suppose the genie tells me, tomorrow you'll be able to desire such men, right? And you're going to be bask in the wonders of the hairy backs of all these men, basically. <laughs> Now, I might think about that and I might like feel, ooh, I can't do it, right? But if I step back from this and I say to myself, well, look, if the genie grants you that, you will be able to feel phenomenologically the same thing you would be feeling towards someone that you now actually desire. So you don't need to basically feel this revulsion that you are feeling right now, Raja, so get over yourself, right? Then that strips away yet another reason I might have for saying to the genie, no, I don't want, I don't want that. So if indeed this is possible, if such a genie can possibly grant me that wish, um, I don't see any reason why I cannot do that, why I shouldn't do that. Now, I'm not done yet, I apologize for this, but there is one more little thing because Mark's question was in terms of obligations, whether I have an obligation to that, right? And that's a very difficult question to answer because when Mark asked the question, he was moving from the idea that everybody has more equal moral worth, basically, correct? And so because every, every person has equal moral worth, then this, then this might lead, lead to the idea that we have an obligation to sexually desire every other person. Now, I'm not sure what to say about that. It's a very complicated question. And there was a paper yesterday that I just read about this, actually. Um, but the thing is that... Um, when it comes to other things, when it comes to other preferences that we have, when it comes to other things that we would like to do, we do not say to people, you, you have an obligation to go to the movies with such and such a person because every person has moral worth, right? In other words, when it comes to other activities and other preferences and other desires that we have, we don't say to people, you need to do this with every, or you need to feel this about every other person because every person has moral worth. We don't do that. I mean, we don't think that the idea of moral worth is so strong as to generate obligations to do everything with everyone, basically. Um, so I don't see why it has to be the same way when it comes to sexual desire. So while, so while I want to say that it is good to be able to expand your horizons and to be able to sexually, to sexually desire everyone, whether that amounts to an obligation seems to me a little bit far-fetched, basically. One more thing about that, which is to, I would like to also further sever the tie between moral worth and sexual desire by basically saying this, that moral worth typically has to do with notions associated with being human, such as 
having dignity, having rationality, having moral status, etc., etc., etc. Sexual desire never targets those things. Usually, <laughs> sexual desire lives in the human gutter. Basically, you don't. We people don't sexually desire other people because they have moral worth. As a matter of fact, if you start talking to someone that you find sexually attractive and they go on and on about more moral worth, that's probably sexually a put off for a lot of people. They're like, I don't, I don't want, I don't want your dignity. I want you now lying on your back, your legs spread eagled, and I want to see the worst that humanity can bring. Basically, your body, your flesh. <laughs> Right? So sexual desire, and this is where I think Kant was onto something very important, sexual desire targets the body, basically, targets our sexual organs, our genitalia, our, 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 you know, our body parts, and in that respect is very different from moral worth. Right? The, idea that, the idea that I have an obligation to sexually desire everyone flirts, comes very close to flirting with the idea that somehow my sexual are so important that I should be I should be obliged to feel them towards everybody but that seems a little bit weird basically so if you think about treating others equally and fairly <clears throat> that usually has nothing to do with my own preferences and moods and whatnot and feelings and emotions obligations tend to have to do with proper treatment of others for what they deserve right uh, at least one aspect of it but nobody deserves that they be sexually desired by Raja Hawan. I mean, ew, who, who cares about that, right? So I think that also puts another wedge, inserts another wedge between sexual desire and obligations on the other hand. We might think, for example, that we have an obligation to give charity, but no one has a specific right to receive charity from me. Um, and so maybe it's the case that no one can say, well, I'm entitled to, you know, be desired by Raja. Um, but you might think that like charity, you have this obligation to be egalitarian in your desires. Um, now, you, you raise something else, which I think is interesting, which is thinking about, um, well, the one question is about whether we have an obligation to be this way. And the other one is whether we'd be more virtuous people if we were that way, that the, the best kind of person on this front would be, uh, an omnisexual who desired people of all shapes and sizes and ages um, that are able to consent. We think that's the most virtuous person. Um, I'm not sure if we would have that view with other kinds of aesthetic qualities. You might think someone that's got a very specific taste that says, I just love Baroque music so much and I dedicate my life to the pursuit of you know, finding the best Baroque music. Um, we might think that maybe the person who's got very specific sexual desires um, has honed their taste in and is perfect, perfectly entitled to have this very particular niche taste um, in the same way that we wouldn't hold it against the Baroque music club. Um, the next thing I sort of wonder about is when we're trying to make a moral assessment about a desire, um, if we separate the desire from the activity itself, so if we imagine someone that has uh, a desire for, let's say, um, very violent sex, but they never do it. They, they feel that um, they don't want to actually perform the action, but they hold the desire. They have these very lurid fantasies that involve um, acts of violence with someone else in a sexual way. Um, can we make an immoral assessment about that? Um, so yeah, let, to answer this last one first, um, <clears throat> if you approach it from a virtue ethics perspective, basically, so for example, if you look at Aristotle's 
uh, virtue of temperance, right? So temperance is the virtue that moderates our bodily desires for all sorts of things, including, especially for sex and food, basically, right? And drink. Um, so in order to be a temperate person, according to Aristotle, you have to desire and take pleasure in the right objects at the right time, for the right reasons, blah, blah, blah. It's the same, those same strictures that apply to what it means to act virtuously in any, at any moment in time. And that you have to do this, according to Aristotle, from a firm and unchanging state. So it's not enough that one time or twice or three times or 10 times in my life, I'm able to do the correct action with, for the right reason, with the right person, at the right time, in the right, using the right object, etc., etc. I have to do this consistently. It has to come from a firm state, so an unchanging state. So to Aristotle, having the virtues, for example, having the virtue of temperance means precisely that your desires are ordered in such a way that you want to take pleasure in the right things, in the right way, etc., etc. So from, from an Aristotelian point of view, there is a moral distinction between someone who has the kind of base desires that you're talking about, but who doesn't act on them because he knows that they're wrong, whereas someone who doesn't have those base desires at all. The latter person is the virtuous person. The former is going to be a continent person, according to Aristotle, which is, not, which is, which is a good thing. I mean, being continent is, not, is nothing to scoff at, basically. It's definitely a much better... I wish most people were continent. We would be in a much better place, actually, right? But you'd still... You'd still you, ethically speaking, you still want to point to that person's desires and say there is something problematic about them, basically, because they are... Because they tell us about because they tell us something about the, the values of the agent. But here also, I think things get a little bit more complicated because you again go to higher order preferences because a person, for instance, might, might basically say, look, I'm straddled with those desires. I know that they are wrong and I'm trying to change them. I do not want to act on them. The person is still continent, right? But you add another layer, which is that the person is actively trying to fight them, try, actively trying to change them, as opposed to someone who basically has them, but doesn't act on them, basically. And, and he's like, whatever, I'll just, one day at a time, basically. Yes, there is, there is room for an ethical, uh, for an ethical uh, assessment of that kind of person, absolutely. So I, I wonder whether this discussion, I know it's a hypothetical case, right? So the genie comes along and says, I can change your desires. But I wonder if even that is stretching the realm of psychological possibility. Um, it's, it's, stretching, it's stretching it towards what I think might not be psychologically possible. And the reason is that I think that our sexual desires are not binaristic. So they're not I'm, I, I'm attracted or I'm not attracted. And I don't think there's even three states. I'm attracted, neutral, or not attracted. I think those sexual desires incredibly uh, nuanced and is rooted in a very complex network of psychological features in a person. So, for example, you mentioned that you don't like men with very hairy backs and very hairy men. I mean, them, I'm not going to psychoanalyze you. Um, I don't like very hairy men either. Um, but, but, but there are, I'm sure, very complex reasons why that would be the case and very complex reasons why someone would like a hairy back or a hairy man or not, or not mind. But, but the point is, if, if the genie comes to you and says, okay, I can change your view on this, right? I can, I can, I can click my fingers and you will then be attracted to hairy backs, there might have to be a whole lot of other cascading changes within the person's psyche 
that need to happen, so much so that their identity is no longer their identity. And you were asking initially in the case of John being attracted to um, men and the genie coming along and saying, would you like to be attracted to women? He would need to give a reason as to why he might say no. The reason might not be because women are awful. The reason might be because it will involve such an enormous change to my psyche that I will no longer be me. Right. So, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, those kind of like, philosophical thought experiments often bank on the everything else being equal clause. So that if they were actually to be performed in reality, they will have repercussions that no one can foresee. I do. So, so I'm going to say a couple. I just want to say two things. So there is a distinction, however, to be made. So suppose, for instance, right now, I don't like men with hairy backs because of something that has happened to me when I was, say, three years old, four years old, right? When I was four years old, I had this incident. Um, I don't know, I was terrorized by a guy with a hairy back, you know, somewhere on the beach in Beirut. He tried to drown me, and all I could see, all I could clutch on was his, the hairs on his back. Right? And I, I have come to associate that with, uh, with dislike for, for, for men with hairy backs. Now, what is interesting about this is that, psychologically speaking, this event could have, is remote in time. So it triggered, it triggered something in me back then that has led to, to me to have this preference that I do today. But the genie could change that preference without changing much about me either because the cause is so remote in time that it just instilled in me that preference when I was young and, then, and that's it. So I grew up to be that way. So depending on the psychological causes of the preference and depending on how currently enmeshed they are in the person's, what I'm trying to distinguish is between a, sexual, a psychological sexual preference and the causes of that preference. If the causes are remote in time and pretty much straightforward, like first impression, et cetera, et cetera, then the experiment can be performed more or less easily. Um, but you're absolutely right, Jason, that, that if we are to conduct those experiments in real life, if there is such a genie, then we will have all sorts of practical uh, related reasons not to resist those changes because of the impact that they will have on our lives. And the, re the practical reasons will differ from one person to another depending on, on their circumstances, basically. So yeah, I, you're absolutely right. But the whole point of our experiments is that you, you, you bracket those changes, basically. So. Part of the reason why we think that, let's say, gay conversion therapy, where you try and take someone who is gay and convert them into being straight, is that you'd be annihilating something about their identity um, and that they would no longer be them. Um, and if you change something very fundamental um, about someone, um, that even if their physical body remains, their psychological status changed so sufficiently that they are not who they were. Um, and I mean, it's interesting whether that, that applies to, to all kinds of preferences. So if you sort of said, um, I don't like blondes, and then I could you know, have a pull that made me suddenly like blondes, you might think that's a minor thing on the fringes, um, mm -hmm. but orientations mm -hmm. might be different. Um, I mean, there's an interesting kind of case that's going on at the moment with regards to sort of clash between um, parts of the transgender community and um, parts of the gay community, which is trans women um, have expressed disdain to lesbians um, who refuse to have sex with them on the basis that they still retain their penises. And the claim is if you're a lesbian um, and I'm a woman, then you should find me attractive. And the fact that you're holding my appendage against me 
uh, is unfair and transphobic. Mm-hmm. What is it that that people are attracted to? Is it their physical features, or is it their gender, or their personality, or some more abstract feature? What what is playing the role there? So when it comes to the trans issue and uh, and the whole thing with uh, with the les with the lesbians. All right. So, okay. So one one issue with that is that we don't have those genies around, basically. Right? We don't have a genie. So, so I, I don't, this puts me in a very awkward position having to speak on in behalf on behalf of lesbians, and I, I it's 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 a little bit awkward. But I, I, I you know, I can imagine a lesbian woman basically saying something to the effect that, well, you know, I am not sexually attracted to people who have penises, basically. I am a lesbian, which means I'm sexually attracted to women. And by women, I mean females, you know, women who have, people who have vaginas and breasts and who have the gender, um, gender, the, the, the structural gender typically associated with women, with people who were born females, basically, right? Now, if this lesbian woman were to meet the genie that Raja met a couple of days ago, right, um, she might have different views. She might say to the genie, well, sure, yeah, if you can change my psychology in such a way that I am attracted, that, that's fine. You know, maybe to that person, her identity as a lesbian person is not that important, right? But the complicating factor with Mark's question is that the issue here is not simply sexual attraction and to whom you are sexually attracted but also the relationship between sexual orientation and someone's identity, right? And I, and I would like to also make things a little bit more complicated by saying that um, <clears throat> identity can admit of various types, right? So for instance, I have an identity as a gay man, right? But I can maintain that identity in a way without enmeshing it in political discourse. So what I mean by this is that my sexual orientation is not just about having sex with guys every now and then, right? My sexual orientation is also about me being with another man for a while, you know, um, being married, having him as a boyfriend, but also enjoying things having to do with the gay culture, like brunch, (laughs) for example. I'm not much of a gay, I I consider myself to be a homosexual, but not a gay man, because there's very little about gay culture that I actually enjoy, actually. But let's go with that. But then there's a bigger identity that I might have as a gay man, which is um, being enmeshed in gay politics, equal rights for gay people, etc., etc., etc. Now, this somewhat easier for men than it is for women because of a history of sexism and patriarchy, right? So when it comes, when you start talking about lesbians, the issue for a lesbian might not just simply be her identity as a woman identified woman, for example, right? Because that is one layer of identity, but there's also a more difficult, complicated layer of identity, which is enmeshed in politics, which is having to do with the idea that lesbians even though they are women who sexually desire other women, there is also much more than that. A lesbian is a woman who tries to maintain certain bonds uh, with other women, certain kind of political cultures with other women, etc., etc., etc. And when you have <clears throat> trans women who come in on, on the scene and accuse them of transphobia by saying, you're not attracted to me just because I have a penis, the question for the lesbian in this, for lesbian women in this case is not just simply 
oh my God, let's just change my sexual desire so I can sexually desire someone who has the penis. The question is also, what would it mean for me as a woman who's a lesbian, who has, who has maintained a political identity for most of her life, to basically want to change my desires so that I am now attracted to people with penises, basically, be they trans women or be they something else. So that question, in, in, that question raises a very cogent reason as to why somebody might not want to have that genie change their sexual desires. But notice that that question arises in a very particular political context. In other words, it might not arise, for example, for a man because a man uh, has... Um, so, for example, if the genie came to me and says, Raja, why don't you tomorrow sexually desire women? I don't really have the same kind of the same kind and the same strength of political reasons to say to the genie no, because I have never been as a man the butt at the at the butt end of uh, sexism from women towards me, for example. But the political context for women is such that it does raise a much difficult question for them in terms of them being able to say, oh, sure, it's just a matter of changing. In other words, in short, the notion of political identity for being a lesbian is very much different and deeper, I think, than the notion of a political identity for being a gay man. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting answer because I thought you were going to go the route of, well, the attraction that lesbians have is towards that physical characteristic of not having a penis. Um, and having a vagina instead. And so these trans women who still have penises lack that characteristic and so they're not attracted. So that, that was why I was curious about that Crowley question because is it, you know, if you, if you, but you're loading more into sexual orientation than the features you're attracted to. You're loading in political kind of... Depending on the woman, she might be, to, to her it might just be a question of sexual attraction in which case she might not have resisting reasons to say no to the genie, basically. But if there are more political layers involved, then the question is no longer going to be simply to be sexual attraction, even though sexual attraction is to bodily parts, basically, as I would like to maintain. It's going to be much more complicated with the, with the political question of what it means for me to start sexually desiring male bodies in many ways because that kind of sexual desire is layered through and through with political meaning. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just wanted to clarify my, my position. No, no, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay, so you, you're distinguishing between sexual attraction and kind of sexual attraction within the framework of a political, uh, psychological system of thought, uh, which has guided one's, you know, history, your experiences, and your views about the world. And so when, when your sexual attraction is rooted within that larger framework, um, you have a good reason to resist the genie that's not a racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic reason. Charles woman says, I'm on board politically. I hate men so much uh, that I've decided to not be one. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm an ally so much. Um, but I also don't believe in uh, destroying you know, the body that I was born in. And I'm every much a woman as you are. Um, you know, the penis is no, uh, no obstacle to that. I am not a man in any way whatsoever. I identify as a man. And so all your political objections should fall by the wayside. And because they've fallen by the wayside, you should now be attracted to me. And that seems kind of odd. Um, you know, the, this idea that 
the person then has to say, well, I, I, I guess if you're on board sufficiently with my political ideals, I, I now have, again, that sort of obligation um, to say yes to the genie or to go through some sort of therapeutic process where my sexual desires change so that I can, you know, do the right thing politically. It seems like to ask a lot of someone. And, and if we can bridge the is-ought gap, we're assuming that they could do it, to say that it would be virtuous to do it, um, seems, at least seems contentious. What's interesting is that you posited it as a dialogue between a specific trans woman and a specific lesbian. And this specific trans woman basically says, I have no, um, I hate men also, basically, which is a stereotype about lesbians, but let's go with it. You know, she says, I also hate men. So, so even if this is true about this specific trans woman, that's not going to necessarily change the political climate in such a way that trans women in general end up trying being being all on the feminist agenda being allies with lesbians now that might be true but if so if that were true if the if the question is if it turns out that politically speaking most trans women are trans women for the reasons that you gave mark basically and there are there is this political alliance between lesbians and trans women that that doesn't currently exist right that does remove away more and more the reasons to say no to the change in sexual desire. But the other thing that you should keep in mind is that my view was never that we have an obligation to change our sexual desires. My view was always that I don't see any good reasons why we shouldn't, which is not the same as to having an obligation. So even though, even though that kind of conversation and with the changing of the political climate in general, um, lesbians might have fewer and fewer reasons to say no to the change, whether that amounts to an obligation to change is a very, is a different, is a, there's still a gap there, basically. The argument given is that, um, not your argument, but your opponent's argument, is that we are obligated to desire certain types of people, and the assumption there seems to be that that desire is a good thing, right? And so if you're depriving it of certain objects, well, then that's a problem. But I wonder whether there's a not a different way of thinking about desire, the opposite way, uh, which is that desire is a bad thing. Um, and desire, on your view, is a, you desire, pure sexual attraction itself is about physical characteristics. And, and so it seems like that's objectifying the object, objectifying the, the object of your desire, the person that you desire. And so it seems like desiring a person in that sense is a bad thing. Um, I mean, the irony about this, and I was just thinking about this yesterday because I was reading this paper on racial preferences and how, and how the person and how the person should always be should should always be swiping right on the Tinder, um, even when even when there are people who are part of her sexual preferences, because everybody has moral worth according to the to the writer. And I was sitting there reading the essay and I'm saying to myself, well, you know, if you were a Kantian about sexual desire, you would actually be doing someone a moral favor by not sexually desiring. Them. And this is the irony. So the irony, it turns out, so if John is, so John can actually say without, without a hint of irony, actually, to all those Arabs, <laughs> hey, John, why don't you, you, you anti-Arab fool, why don't you desire us? John can actually say to them, hey, look guys, I'm doing you a moral favor, you know? If I sexually desire you, I'm actually objectifying you. So you are out of the clutches of objectification. Go and enjoy your lives, basically, right? So you're, you're absolutely right on this. And I was thinking of writing a little thing to put it on my blog, actually, about this, which is that if you were a Kantian, 
<laughs> sexually desiring someone else is precisely to set aside their humanity, as Kant kind of puts it in his lectures on ethics, basically, and to look at them basically as a body. He says you're not you're not considering them you're not considering their worth in terms of their work and services, as he said, but you're only considering them as flesh, as a body, basically. And he says the only other case where the only other case where people desire desire other human beings as flesh is in the case of cannibalism, where he says it's very, very rare. But he says only with sexual desire do we actually go after someone's body as a body. And of course, people interpret him to mean that, oh, well, according to Kant, you know, we might as well have sex with corpses. Of course, he didn't mean it that way. He wasn't an idiot. But the idea was that you set aside someone's, someone's rationality and you just go over them as, as, as cock, ass, tits, vagina, whatever it is, basically. Um, and so, yeah, there's a sense in which when you sexually desire someone, if you're a Kantian, you're actually objectifying them. So you're not doing them on any, any moral favors by doing that. But actually, when the genie visits the Kantian, uh, the question that the genie should be asking is not, would you like me to allow you to desire these people? It's, would you like me to remove the desire you have from your existing, Absolutely. Absolutely. existing sexual object? That. Yeah, Kant says it right there in the, he says it in a number of places, but in the grounding for the metaphysics of morals, he says it is the wish of every rational being. He says every rational being, not every being. So you have to be rational, not in the sense that you have the capacity of being rational, but also if, when, you are, when you are actually thinking rationally about it, I think is what he meant, that it is the wish of every rational being to be rid of those inclinations, as he says. Um, because only then can you basically be, make sure that your motive for treating people the way you treat them is pure and, and, and comes from a goodwill, basically. So yeah, I mean, he was, so yeah, you're absolutely right, yeah. So I, I think it's a fascinating response to the objection that not desiring a certain ethnic group is racist because, well, not desiring them is the best thing you can do. Um, but, but, but let's put that aside for a moment. Do you think Kant was right that sexual desire is firstly objectifying someone and secondly wrong, morally wrong in some way or vicious in some way for doing so? So I, you know, I, um, I'm one of the very few philosophers who have written on sex and Kant who actually thinks that Kant was right about sex. I think, I think which is very ironic because Kant was supposedly a virgin. You know, I, he probably had, but he probably experienced what sexual desire was. He knows what it means. Um, and maybe that's why he was a virgin, actually. Maybe he was so, um, so coherent between his beliefs and his behavior that, <laughs> that he avoided sex altogether um, and didn't marry. But, um, but yeah, I think he was right. And however, the problem with this is that I don't know how to argue for that other than on phenomenological grounds. I mean, I think, and this is where I think phenomenology becomes really, really important because the only argument that I can do, I mean, there are various arguments one can give. So for example, what somebody can say, well, look, when you are sexually attracted to someone and you're trying to get them into bed and to get them into the sack, you basically do all sorts of things to do that. Like you pretend you're someone else, you lie. Are you married? No, of course I'm not married. Why would you think I'm married? The ring on my finger, that doesn't mean, that's just fashion, right? Um, did you like the English patient? Oh, I love the English patient. That was the best move. You would do anything. You violate your own integrity just so you can have sex with the other person. Um, so it does lead, like the sexual impulse, and Sobel has written nice, nice things about this, the sexual desire, Here's, here's another irony. A lot of people say that when you don't sexually desire someone and have sex with them, this is a form of coercion. This is a form of lack of consent. 
But there is another side to this, which is when you are in the grip of sexual desire, the desire itself is also very coercive in many, many ways. That it makes you do things that under other conditions you would not have done. So sexual desire has this thing where it's a desire, we want to be able to act on it so that we can affirm our agency. But it can also be quite oppressive and quite compelling in the way, in the things it pushes you to do and the, the lies it makes you commit. Now, of course, some people are strong enough, they don't succumb to it, but it is a kind of force to be, to be content, to contend with, basically. It's not, it's, not, it's not like a little, you know, itch that hits you on the elbow. No, it's, sometimes it can be quite powerful. But the other thing is that the other argument that I think that one can make in terms of why Kant was right is basically a phenomenological argument, which is ask yourself what you feel when you are in the grip of sexual desire, when you are about to have sex with someone whom you think is incredibly good looking and, and absolutely just delightful, basically to, to, to touch to smell, to lick, to kiss, and everything like that. Just imagine, I mean, when you are in that kind of state, and, and, and I don't think it differs between men and women, in to, it differs to some extent, but not to the extent that some people like to say, um, when, when you're in the grip of that state, it, it, I don't know, this is a typical philosophical move, but it's just evident that you are attracted to the body. You want to touch the genitals, the armpits, the, the arms, the thighs, the feet, whatever it is that you find attractive about that person. And going the phenomenological route, I think, vindicates Kant to a large extent. So I wonder how these views then would play in for what kind of sex life one ought to have. So should one be aspiring to be celibate, would be the one view, um, to, to not have any sexual desires? Should one be striving for, let's say, um, a monogamous one one sort of soulmate partner um, in the sense that maybe over time the 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 body starts to fade and you know you sort of you develop this other kind of, of attraction to someone that might be about their other kinds of uh, wonderful qualities their states of mind mm -hmm. um, and is the promiscuous person who you know moves from one sexual encounter to the other doing something um, morally blameworthy yeah, I mean, if Kant had his own circles of hell, the promiscuous person would be in the seventh circle, basically. I mean, it's, it's that, because the promiscuous person engages in multiple acts of objectification, and, um, and the promiscuous person, by definition, a promiscuous person, so if I have sex with my boyfriend or my husband seven times a day, that's not promiscuity, right? <laughs> a promiscuous person, by definition, is someone who has lots of sex with very different people. So the problem with the promiscuous person is that he is not only engaged in multiple acts of objectification, but he's also objectifying various people, right? If I have sex with my boyfriend seven times a day, only, I'm only objectifying one person, multiple times, but it's just one person. When, when, you, when you're promiscuous, you're objectifying like, what, 50 people, right? <laughs> Depending on how promiscuous you are. So yeah, that is a problem. Now Kant famously, or notoriously rather, had this view that the only way to get rid of sexual objectification, it's actually not clear whether Kant thought that you would get rid of sexual objectification or whether that makes sexual objectification morally permissible. I think it's the latter. But he's famous for saying that the only way to make it permissible is within marriage. Because Kant had this thing where legally speaking in marriage, you have some sort of ownership over the other person. 
and the other person has ownership over you. So when you own that person and he owns you, you get yourself back. So it's like having your cake and eating it at the same time. You own someone else, so you can do with them whatever you want as far as objectification is concerned. But you also get yourself back and they get themselves back. So it's like they can both assert their personhood while at the same time being able to objectify each other. Um, now, if you set aside Kant's marriage solution as being problematic in a number of ways, and, and most philosophers today find it, it's coherent, but it's problematic in many, many, many ways, there is no solution to the, to the, to the, to the Kantian problem of objectification, except for, like you said, Mark, so if, I, if I'm, for example, with someone for a long time, then the, uh, the, 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 the fire of my sexual desire for that person goes down to extent. And this, this is called the bedroom death, I think. It happens in most long-term relationships. And so then, so then the sexual activity starts to have a different feel to it. So that's a solution, except that it's a weird solution because in a way it, gets, it solves the problem by getting rid of it. And by, what I mean by this is that in so far, a sexual desire for someone else dies and you're having sex with that person out of different motives, habit, love, whatever it is, then you're no longer objectifying that person because the, 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 the sexual desire itself that leads you to view that person as nothing, but a, as, as nothing but a body basically is undercut. It's no longer there. So you don't have to worry about it. So there, is, there isn't really no problem to that. There is really no solution to the problem of sexual objectification. Now there are some philosophers like Alan Wood, for example, who say things that um, Kant thought too negatively about sexual desire. It can be infused with other things like love, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's easier said than done. I mean, look, suppose for example, you love someone, you know, John just met his new Arab guy, let's call him, I don't know, Ali, right? So John and Ali are, are very much in love with each other. Uh, John really, but there's also tons of sexual excitement between them, right? So John does a lot of these wonderful things to Ali, uh, that, that people do out of love. He buys him flowers. He uh, takes him to Vegas uh, for a vacation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's all done out of love. But you know what? When they come to have sex with each other and John sees Ali naked, he just wants to devour him. You know, sort of love goes out the window at least for the next 15 minutes, you know? So it's hard to see how sexual desire itself can be infused with love as opposed to be embedded in a love relationship, basically. So I'm not sure that those solutions actually, actually work. And there's one other thing that I want to mention, which is that to Kant, the problem with objectification is not just objectifying someone else. The problem with objectification is allowing yourself to be objectified also. Because you have to remember the categorical imperative, the second formula, the humanity formula, basically says, treat the humanity in others and in yourself never only as a means, but also always as an end, right? So it's not, just, it's not just that you objectifying other people, but you allowing yourself to be objectified. So if I hook up with a guy and we have sex with each other and the guy is feasting on me, that used to happen years ago, it doesn't happen anymore. That guy is feasting on me. I am basically committing a double error, according to Kant. I am objectifying that guy and I'm allowing him to objectify me too, which is a big deal for Kant, basically. So... So for the promiscuous uh, listeners and viewers uh, of Brain in a Vat, I've got two potential solutions, okay, uh, to the problem of objectification. So the one, the one solution is to say, okay, Kant was right. Um, objectification is morally wrong um, be because of the formula of humanity. Um, but morality is not the only 
value that we should live by. There's other values as well that matter. Um, and perhaps there are things that we get out of casual sex that are important. Um, and although morality is also important, it's not overwhelmingly important. So that's one possible solution. A second possible solution is to say, well, sure, it's true that by Kant's formula of humanity, it would be morally wrong to, to engage in objectification. But the formula of humanity and Kantian thought generally about morality is incorrect. The correct methodology of thinking about right and wrong is utilitarianism. So specifically, if you're a hedonistic utilitarian, you might say um, an action is right just in case it maximizes pleasure for everyone involved. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like casual sex does that a lot of the time, perhaps not all of the time. I, I imagine there's some quite damaging casual sex as well. But you can imagine that at least a subset of casual sex, uh, both partners walk away having objectified each other, but walk away knowing that perhaps and quite happy with that. They enjoy being objectified. They enjoy objectifying the other. They both do so kind of with a meta awareness of what they and, and the other are doing. They feel very good about it. And it seems like nothing wrong has happened. Um, and, and that's not trying to fix Kantianism. It's, it's putting Kantianism to one side and replacing it with utilitarianism. So those are my two solutions. The one is retaining Kantianism, but saying it's not the only value that matters. The other one is replacing Kantianism with utilitarianism and rendering a right moral action. Um, yeah, so I mean, that could work. But I do have a couple of observations. So I think with respect to the second solution, it would work, but I think it's the case, I mean, I, I think it's too easy because the, the interesting thing about Kant on objectification is not to throw, to throw out Kant and Kant's formula of humanity and then say, well, let's just substitute it with utilitarianism. I mean, if you do that, you would solve any interesting problem in any moral theory. I could, I could just as much um, throw out act utilitarianism, for example, by, by saying, well, look, hi, here's how I solve this problem with act utilitarianism throw away utilitarianism and just adopt Kantian ethics. So that's not gonna, you're right, it, it works, but it's not going to be the most interesting way to go about it. The first solution I think is interesting because you can argue that morality is not everything, there are other values that can compete with it. Um, I am not one, so I think that's, that doesn't throw away Kant, it just makes, makes um, morality more nuanced. You, you, somebody can say, I accept Kantian ethics, but I also accept the, I do not accept the thesis that morality is overriding, that there are other competing values, basically. Whether you can be a Kantian and accept the thesis that morality is not overriding, I'm not sure whether, that's, whether that ultimately works out. I'll leave it to the Kant scholars. I think Kant did believe that morality was overriding, given some of the things he had to say. But let's not worry about that. So that could work. My own solution to the... My into the, to the problem, which, is, which has been hammered in me by years and years of my students teaching them this material, is like, is, you know, at the end of the class, they say, okay, fine. I mean, we can't argue against Kant. You're right. You've defended him. But who gives a shit? I mean, this is just what? You, you have casual sex with someone for like an hour, one night stand, a whole night. There's no harm done. Both consented. Both did a lot of pleasure. So you set aside each other's humanity for three hours. Big deal. And of course, so it's not, a, so you can admit that it's a moral wrong, but it's a moral wrong that can compensated by other good things about it. I, I, or that it's a, it's a minor moral wrong. So you can, you know, whether that does justice to what Kant actually had in mind, I'm not sure, but this is the, this is the way I like to, this is the way I like to think about it basically.
Yeah, I think that's very similar to my idea of saying the, the even if it's wrong, it's it's it doesn't override all other values that you could derive from the act. Um, yeah, I mean, personally, I am a utilitarian, so I, I find it very hard to get into the mindset of a Kantian on these things. Um, it feels alien. I can do it, but it but it feels very strange. You're a utilitarian. Yeah. Now that explains so many things right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Some of my best friends are utilitarian. Huh? <laughs> I have to get some new friends. <laughs> so I wonder about um, are there other kinds of, let's say, not just promiscuity, but other kinds of sexual behaviors then where we think that there's a, a problem of using someone as a, as a means. So if you have a, a BDSM relationship, um, and so someone is very overtly being uh, beaten or disempowered. Um, if we think uh, that's wrong, even under conditions where there's a consent that's going on, uh, or that they have the strong desire to be um, treated like an object. Because um, part of what I wonder is, it seems to be the means only bit that's the problem. In other words, um, when there is no respect for the person. Um, but if you have this prior discussion and this prior consent, the person says, well, I, I, I want you to use me as a means, but I, you're treating me as an end at the same time. You're respecting my inherent worth through the, this agreement that we've created, through the sexual dynamic that we have. Um, and it's only those cases where you haven't obtained that meeting of the minds that something immoral has occurred. This is the, the route that some uh, Kantians like to take about sexual objectification. Um, and these are the Kantians, they're the ones whom I call uh, the soft Kantians in, in some ways, because they try to maintain their Kantian credentials, but move away from what Kant actually had to say about sex. Um, and they try to maintain their Kantian credentials by basically saying that, well, consent is what matters. Um, so they have the two parties have uh, consented. And of course, then they beef up the language of consent by using Kantian terminology, such as, um, when they consent to this, the consent is genuine, not only in the sense that it is voluntary, uncoerced, and fully informed, but it's also genuine in the sense that you know what the other party wants, and you're helping to meet that other party's goals. So there's a sense in which you are treating that, the humanity in that person as an end, and not only as a means. So you beef up the notion of consent in such a way as to meet as much as possible of Kant's strictures. The only problem with this is that, and it's a major problem, but the, the main problem with this is that, um, of course, to Kant, consent was necessary and in most cases was sufficient, but there are some cases in which it's not, it's not sufficient. So for example, two people cannot consent to, to chop each other's arms off, for example. In other words, what you're consenting to has priority to Kant. In other words, it has to be morally permissible thing to which the people are consenting to first. If two people consent to things that are not morally permissible, then Kant is going to have issues with that. And of course, because, because consenting to be objectified by another is morally problematic to Kant, consenting to it is not going to be enough for him. It's necessary, but it's not going to be enough, basically. It's not going to make it, it's not going to make it um, abide by the categorical imperative in that respect. Because the ends that you are supposed to be helping the other person achieve have to be morally permissible ends to begin with.